Hi and welcome to episode 54 of The Game Pit. My name's Sean and this is the big one for Essen, our final show, talking about all the highs and lows. Yes indeed, hello, thank you for tuning in. Ronan here. We have split the games up, we've chosen five each and they're in three categories. We're going to be talking about our best surprise of the show, so a game we didn't expect much of but turned out to be lots of fun on subsequent plays. And the opposite, also our biggest disappointment of the show. So that's not necessarily the worst game of the show because we both know that's the producer, Sean. It's... A game we thought was going to be great and didn't quite match up to that. What else are we going to chat about, Sean? First of all, Ronan, it's far too close to the producer game we played. I'm still very upset you shouldn't be mentioning it. It's not good. No, it's not good. It could be. It could be. There's something in there, but no, it's not good. Yeah, Ronan, so looking forward massively to talking about the three we did enjoy, but there were a couple of heavy, heavy disappointments there for us. Yes, indeed. As Sean said, this is our final Essen 2015 show. Hope you've enjoyed our coverage. We'll be looking to do something similar, possibly even expanded next time around, if we can get ourselves together, get the resources together, and everything falls our way. Sean, where else can we be found as always Ronan we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network go there for the very best in gaming podcasts we're also proud members of 2d6.org where you can find audio visual and written content of the highest standards So to start with, we're both going to give you our one game, which was the biggest pleasant surprise off the show. So I'm going to kick off, and mine is Andromeda, designed by Jan Zalewski from Galacta Games, two to four players for 60 minutes. We did treasure hunt this game, and I think I pulled it out as a treasure, but I'll tell you the story as to why it's become a surprise. The game quickly is themed on you are all aliens of different races, exploring what they consider to be an alien, but is actually a human abandoned spaceship, which has turned up in their sector of space. The spaceship is made up of various tiles, the size depending upon number of players, and on each turn, there are turn order cards for the turn that's about to happen, and there are command dice. And whoever's first player, doesn't mean they're going to go first, it just means that they're going to do this part of the game. They roll the dice... And then they put the dice together with a command card and they offer that round the table. If any player from around the table decides to take that turn order card and the command dice on it, then that's great. The first player then makes another offer out of those command dice and turn order cards and offers it round again. If, however, no one takes that offer, then you are forced to take it yourself as the first player and the decision on how to split the rest of the command dice up and turn order cards goes to the next player around the table. And each turn, that first player marker is going to rotate around clockwise so everyone gets an equal chance to do so. Then, in the turn order of the cards you've selected from the offers given to you, you're going to take your actions. The different faces of the dice are going to allow you to use your aliens, little minis, alien minis to go onto the spaceship and somewhere teleport on there and then move around and manipulate it so the distant dice faces let you train up explorers out of your general pool of aliens put your explorers on the ship move around the ship use any of the four technology cards which are available during the turn now there are only four of them and they're one use each so that's why sometimes turn order can be important there is a bad side to the dice 
that is to get contaminated and that's going to kill off your aliens that are on the ship and also on your turn each of the rooms which you've explored and flipped over as we all move around is going to have a special power generally and if you have the most aliens in any of those rooms you can use the special power of one of them on your turn and they do all kinds of stuff you can bring up extra aliens you can kill off other aliens on the ships you can move around you can, there's different things you can do using those rooms and that's a big part of the decisions now Everyone gets given one personal mission, and there's gonna be there's a big deck of them. There's a variety of things you can do: having a certain number of aliens in one room, certain number of explorers trained and ready to go, controlling different areas of the ship. There are also seven group missions available, and you flip those over one at a time for each of the seven maximum seven rounds of the game. And whoever completes that group mission first takes that card and scores a number of points on it. You also, at the end of each of your turns, score points for each room you've got the majority of aliens in. They've all got a score of zero, one or two points, what have you. And depending upon the number of players, if at the end of your turn you have a certain number of points, you instantly win. Otherwise, after seven rounds, you check out how many points everyone's got, and the most points wins the game. Sean, we did discuss Andromeda pre to the Essen Fair. I know you haven't played it yet. Got any questions for me? Yeah, I've got a couple of questions, Ronan. Before... We went to Essen. There wasn't a lot out about this game. But the one thing that you really, really found interesting was the I split you choose mechanism. Is something that you've liked in previous games. Now, you've you explained how it worked within the game there. Did it work? Did it work as well as you thought it was going to work, that one mechanism? Well, it did. But I think that it took like a lot of I split you choose games... A while for us, a few rounds for us to see the value in each role. And it's actually a very tactical game. So the decisions on what is important for each player are going to vary for each round. You don't sort of get it in a set way. It also depends upon race powers. For example, one race was immune to one contaminated die each turn. So it slightly changed the way you made an offer because you knew if there's only one contaminated die in there, then they weren't fast. It was a very positive offer to them. However, if you put two or more, while that would affect them and make them less likely to take that, it would make everyone less likely to take it and then you would end up with it. So then you had to kind of overload on that offer. Or if someone had no explorers trained up from their general pool of aliens and moved up, ready to move on to the ship, because it's a two-step process, then you knew that that dice face was going to be very valuable to them. So all the time you're looking at the dynamic situation and there's not a lot of rules. It's very simple. It didn't take me long to go over the rules there, and pretty much you'd be able to play from there, genuinely. It's what's going on the board, who's kind of contesting the area with me, and what's valuable to them, and making that decision as you go. And of course, like all of these games, the more you know the game, the better you are able to judge it. But what really surprised me was, especially through the use of room powers, people were able to make use of very simple dice results in interesting ways and manipulate the board and the situation to suit them. And that's where I think it was really great because it wasn't obvious all the options you can do with a very simple set of dice. Once we found out about this game and what it does, one of the things that I was really interested in was those those different races. And I just got the question really I want to ask you. I mean, do you have to work together a lot? Does that element of the game work? How different are the races? Do they all bring completely new things to the table or are they kind of similar in what they need to do? You don't have to work together at all. This is highly competitive. 
There is no cooperation in this game whatsoever. Everything is against everyone else. You're trying to stop them from controlling rooms. You're trying to take control of rooms so you can use the powers. And you're trying to stop them from being in a position of winning and, and racing them to these missions. Okay, the mission they've got in their hand, you don't know exactly. But you can sometimes guess after a while what it might be. Although there's a big, decent wadge of those missions in the deck. In terms of the different races, I think it does affect how you play a little bit. I think you need to exploit what you're doing. I completely forgot to use my race power for the first couple of turns. I don't know what I was doing. And it put me way behind because just the slight edge the other players were getting literally gave them an edge designed exactly to do that. So I think you need to play your race cleverly. I think sometimes maybe the missions will come up that suit your race a bit better and you need to leap on those opportunities and grab them because those are the only points that are permanent. Once you've done a mission and got the card, it's your card. Everything else on the board is quite shifting. Cool. I'm really looking forward to playing this one, Ronan. It sounds really, really intriguing. So the next time we're playing, we're playing that first, I think. For sure, for sure. I think I'm going to take it around and pimp it out a bit because I think there's lots of different gamers that are going to enjoy this idea. It's not difficult to play. It's not long to play. It plays in under an hour, actually, for us. And we were all intrigued and very much looking to explore it. Now, the reason I thought it was a surprise was because the booth was quite uninspired. They just had two tables out, and for half of the show... One of the tables had an older game on it. By Saturday, they managed to have two games on Andromeda going, but they were letting people sit down and play whole games of it. So there wasn't kind of a flow. It wasn't very well staffed. I spoke to a couple of people who tried it out, and they weren't very impressed. Now, I don't know whether the rules were given wrong, or it's not a game that shines in that environment. But immediately, first game of this, Everyone was interested. People were up for playing it again a second time straight away, which we've said before is kind of a sign of a game that has something interesting and is a bit different. So that's why it's my surprise. It had gone downhill, and I really wasn't sure about buying it, and I, I took it a punt on it. I went in untested, and I'm really glad I did. I was really impressed with Andromeda. And as with you, Sean, I'm really looking forward to exploring it more because there's lots to explore. It's different room tiles, different races, different missions. I think every game is going to be different. Brilliant. Okay, so moving on to my big surprise of Essen, and it really was a surprise for me given the genre that it comes from. It's from Horrible Games, and it's Potion Explosion, designed by Stefano Castelli, who designed Bomazo, also released in the Essen Fair. We talked about that many times. Andrea Crespi, who did 1969, and Lorenzo Silva from Dungeon Fighter and Steampark fame. Plays two to four players in about 30 to 60 minutes. What is it? It's a puzzle, pattern recognition, and set collection game where players are taking coloured marbles. So you've got this contraption in the middle that basically lets all these marbles run down different channels. You have in front of you potions that need the different colours or ingredients to fill them up and turn them over, and then they will give you a special action. On your turn, you are simply going to take one of these marbles from the contraption in the middle, and should any marbles of the same colour collide, then you get to take all of them. After that, if more of the same colour collide, then you get to take all of them. And you're just trying to fill up your potions and make your potions so that they give you the special abilities. They also will score your points at the end of the game. Very simple game. Initially, Ronan, it stood out from the crowd just by the look of it. It did catch the eye from the look of it, but 
Still not something I'd have tried. We did chat about it in our Essen review. Natalie made us play it, and I'm very happy she did. And it's kind of hard to explain the charm. Now, as soon as we got back home, people have talked to me about our Essen show. They've said, why were you guys going on about Potion Explosion? It just sounded boring. It's like, what, Candy crushed the game? That's not interested. I think the best word to use is, it is fun. Whenever anyone chooses to play it... I turn around and go, yeah, cool, okay. And then I find myself having fun. What makes it into a proper game, a gamer's game, to some degree, really, is the potion powers. If, if someone's not using those very well, then you're going to beat them. They, they open opportunities. The, the different potions can do different things. Take marbles out. Use other people's marbles. Steal them from them. Use your own stock of marbles as different colours. Do various stuff. Timing when to use them, that really is the key of what turns it into a sort of a decision-making game. But it's light. Of course, there's enjoyment in the physicality of the marbles. Although I think your marble run might be wearing out a little bit, Sean. It's have a heavy use since Essen. It's been used probably into double figures a number of games. Different people have been using it. My daughters have taken it. A few people have borrowed it. People have been enjoying it and talking about the game. I just I don't know how many games that are this fun to play. Not not massively deep, but great yeah just that is one of the actually the negatives of it the construction of the actual contraption that you use to feed the marbles down it isn't great it isn't very thick the cardboard used even during the Essen con they had to redesign it because it wasn't working there to give you separate bits in the bag when you bought the game to make it work a little bit better already r1 is, is flaking at the edges and one of the aisles has collapsed a bit i think we're gonna have to do a repair job and that's I mean, yeah it has been used quite well but only as you said just into double figures maybe 12 15 times and I don't think it's got 30 games in it, so that's that's an issue. But going back to what Rona said, absolutely, it's just got that slight bit of the gamer element to it, and just tons and tons of fun. I would not have gone near this in a million years, but Natalie really liked the look of it, and we gave it a go, and it's probably the first puzzle game I've ever really, truly enjoyed. So if that's not a surprise to me, nothing else will be. So that's, that's Potion Explosion, that's my choice. The biggest surprise. Now, Sean, Essen is a time of joy. It's a time of great joy, Ron. Great joy. Great joy. It's also, however, a time of disappointment. We don't like that. We don't like it. Let's do this quick because it upsets me. <laughs> Although I think my biggest disappointment is that I let you pick up the advent calendar and I didn't. And I keep looking at it saying, I want it. So I'm looking at it right now. It's about three feet from me. You're a bad person. <laughs> Why? Uh. I have literally earmarked the expansions which are for games that I own and you don't. No, <laughs> uh, we, we'll strike a deal. We'll strike a deal somewhere. Yeah, we will strike something if they start heading my way. <laughs> anyway, apart from the disappointment of not getting the amazing-looking advent calendar, there is a game which let me down. This is Hengist. Uwe Rosenborg, why? Two-player game from Mayfair. 20 minutes. 20 average minutes. It's themed on two Viking brothers raiding the coast of Britain together and trying to get the most treasure from the villages they're raiding. In the game, 
You each have three little meeples to represent your raiding parties. They start in a boat, which is along the coast. You're going to play cards of certain colours to move them from the boat onto the land, from the beach inward to the hinterland, and from there down paths which may or may not be hidden, depending upon whether you've had a look at them, we've been down there beforehand, and they're going to take you down to four treasure tiles. So you've got a big tile which has four treasure tiles attached to the bottom, and then sort of a hidden path board which will tell you in which direction the four paths go at the end higgly piggly spaghetti styly you're going to play across three of those larger tiles each game basically as you the boat moves off the end of the third one the first one flips over any figures left on their raiding parties get pushed off and you're gonna have to play cards to get them back on the boat get back into play again which is a large aspect of whatever tactics there are to the game the end of your turn after you've played as many cards as you wish to you're going to draw cards you always get a couple but get one more for every figure that's in the hinterland that's moved off the beach moved inland but I mean, they don't stay when they raid villages. They go back to Hinterland automatically. So it's almost the default place for your figures to be in the game. There are Joker cards which you can play. They let you spy on the path to look ahead. Or they can stand in as any colour while you're trying to play sets of colours for a path to go down and raid a village. Or they allow you to put any raiders which have been kicked off the boards by the progress of the boat back onto the boat and get them back into play and back churning away. They've actually already introduced an extra rule in that once all the treasure tiles go from the two leftmost boards, you automatically switch the leftmost board over and open a new board up because apparently people have been turtling in the game. So that's going to be in the next printing. That's all there is to it, Sean. That's Hengist. It's collect some cards as unlimited hand size, play some colours if they happen to match the places where you are, and then collect some treasure tiles, which are valued between 4 and 10. Most treasure at the end of the game wins. Yeah. I find it hard to believe that this is an Uwe Rosenberg game. It's just Well, there's some stories that it might be an old design, which, given the exactly. success of Patchwork, yeah. look out for rehashed. I was thinking that. I was thinking more like something he he designed on a bus somewhere, or on a tissue, piece of tissue paper and left somewhere, and someone's gone, oh, look, let's go and print that. It just doesn't have anything to it. It's just a bit random. The theme, well, there's this big blurb about the theme being that it's two Saxon brothers tasked to help this great chief, Vortigern, but then it's a completely abstract game. The paths down, although you can look at where they all go, if you've got one of those wild joker cards, they're too random. You can get the one that you, looks like it's going to the highest treasure goes to the lowest treasure. So you almost have to look. Otherwise, you're completely going out on a limb unless the treasures are really close together. So, yeah, just ran it. I didn't hate it, but it just didn't sit well with me at all as a Rosenberg game. You have this preconception going in that it's a Rosenberg game. There's got to be something. There's going to be a twist, a really clever twist, and that never came, Ronan. No, it never came. And people are wondering, is there something up? Should we compare the German rules to the English rules? Did they miss a page out somewhere? Surely there's more to it than this. And apparently there's not. It's it's just boring. It's bland. It's average. It happens. You draw some cards. You get the colours you need or you don't. You can kind of try to rush the game, but only if you get Joker cards. You can try and do that if you've got a couple, and then you try and draw more. And if you don't draw them, you've left the other player behind just cleaning up on treasure tiles. You get boards that come out with like a five, two, sixes, and a seven in treasure. 
I don't really care what path I go down then, which eliminates any sort of choice in the game. It's like, I've got that combination, there you go. The big tiles, they generally have a certain colour to get from the beach to the hinterland. If you don't get that colour, if you get stuck behind and you just can't draw that colour, what happens is you then are forced to play a joker card to in order to move your figure along to the next board, which accelerates the movement of the boat and then allows the other player to move the boat quicker and leave you stuck behind again. So then you're trying to catch up. And you can just get stuck in this really boring loop. People have said the first player can just take all three raiders out of the boat and block the boat for the next player. And then if the second player doesn't get joker cards to accelerate the boat across and open up new opportunities, they're so far behind then, you're in real trouble. There's so much wrong with this game in such a simple, bland set of rules. Horribly, horribly disappointed in Hengist. It's, you know, it's not awful, it's just boring. And sometimes that can be a worse disappointment. I can't even properly rant about it. Let's move on from Hengist to <laughs> something else not very good, because I just don't care about the game. Before we finish on this one, I think if any of our UK listeners fancy a copy of Hengist, there might well be two copies in the next UK Maths Trade on Board Game Geek. I mean, it's awesome. Get in there, <laughs> Get in there, yeah, it's great. If you ever see these in the Maths Trade, you've got to go for it. Anyway, my biggest disappointment, and uh, I think we touched on this in our Friday night Essen Roundup is Favour of the Pharaoh by Bezier Games, designed by Thomas Lehman. Oh, Thomas, usually so good. Race for the Galaxy and this. Plays two to four players. I met him, Sean. Did you know? Did you? I was on a panel with him. Oh. Remember? Exciting. Well, yes. sci-fi convention. I was yes. pretty awesome. You he didn't know who I was. He didn't look that impressed, but I think <laughs> I was awesome. Well done, you. Steve Jackson as well. That was cool. Yeah, you're the man. You are the uh, man. A little bit. Well, I was kind of the add-on, but let's pretend I was the man. Matt, I'm now Matt Gertz. Oh, my, I'm swimming with the sharks, my friend. I'm a big fish. <laughs> well, you are a big fish. <laughs> anyway, two to four players, 45 minutes. This is, uh, we've talked about this many, many times, this and its predecessor, which is To Court the King. It's a dice-building game in a Yahtzee style, and it's themed around ancient Egypt. Very quickly, what you do is you roll your dice, you set one aside, you roll the rest of them, you set one aside, until you get the chain or the pairs that you want to pick up a tile in the middle of the table, and that's going to give you an ongoing power, or in this case, a one-off power, as has been introduced with this game. And you keep you sound so bored about this game, even in your rules description, Sean. <laughs> I know, I know. It's just, it was just so disappointing. Again, it's not, it's not a terrible game. It's just not what I was hoping for at all. So... You're building up your cards in front of you and then you eventually get to the pharaoh and then everyone has one last roll off and the person who gets the most dice in one number or the highest number if everyone's tied in the amount of dice they get wins the game. So Ronan, yeah. Nearly fell asleep talking about it then, so save me. Okay, let's save you very quickly because this is clearly the worst section of the whole podcast. It was overpriced, it was underproduced, the powers were not very interesting because they were too flexible. It meant you took decisions out. Because I can do whatever I want to do. So, uh, no good. It accelerates the game too much. It's far too free and easy and loose. In terms of a remake, it's always going to get compared to the game before. Favour of the Vera were compared to Court the King. They have not improved it. If you don't improve it, there's no point in doing it. And there's certainly no point in doubling the price. So, sorry, Favour of the Vera, get out of here. I'm not interested. Right, equally as quick, 
question has to be, do the additions, the different dice, the new one-off powers, the scarab tokens, do they bring enough for somebody who already has to court the king? No, they don't. Or to justify 50 euros? No, it doesn't. The component quality is low. Uh, the pyramid player boards, just what were they about? They just brought nothing to the game. There's one decent use for them, which tells you how many of one number that you've got at the end. Other than that, it's just pointless. And it just wasn't nearly enough to make me want to replace the Court of King, so I'm more than happy to keep that and favour the Pharaoh can sail on its merry way down the Nile. So, Sean, we've sent everyone to sleep with that last little segment. It's time to pick it up for the big finale. Our top threes of Essen 2015. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready to build up this excitement, Ronan. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. My number three is Space Cadets Away Missions from Dan Raspler and Al Rose, published by Stronghold Games, one to six players, varied playtime, but we're going to guess around 90 minutes, depending upon the scenario. This is a retro sci-fi themed co-op with, as I said, many different scenarios to play through and the game's going to change depending on which scenario you choose. In all games, you're going to be playing on a tile-based map which needs to be explored. They will be face down, those tiles. On each of the tiles is going to have an alien and a discovery tile which will turn over as you explore, which is a forced action. So there's going to be varied numbers of different types of baddies for you to encounter. There's also going to be various goodies and components for you to pick up and use to either make cool technologies or use straight away or weapons or bits of kit or different things for you all about exploration and moving and combat and going on. The players take the role of a member of crew from a spaceship who have jumped onto their little shuttlecraft and are off to do a mission. And each of the different members of the crew have got different focuses on what they can do, but they're all generally the same. You tend to get three actions to use on your turn in which you're going to move, you're going to shoot, you're going to try and learn about alien technologies, you're going to use items, you're going to interact with the scenario and you're going to attempt to do whatever it is the scenario has told you you have to do. The different types of aliens in the game and they all act differently. You've got things like bugs which will automatically swarm together before they come to attack you there are leaders which will attempt mind control brains in a jar which will cost you actions there are sentinels which are like big bads which will run quickly into your area and they'll cause everyone in that area to panic and start breathing quickly and using up oxygen if you ever run out of oxygen you die if any of the players dies that's the end of the scenario and it can be dangerous because the way the alien AI works they'll focus on a certain tile and they'll focus on a certain player and if you've left the player in danger they'll get taken out so you need to support each other the whole time. It is quite combat focused this game but it has got other interesting in things in there. There's for example thralls which are humans which have been taken over by the aliens and you can save them and take the wires out of their brain and then if you do it well enough they'll actually join you and become sort of like a sidekick and help you out. There's all kinds of different discoveries to do the scenarios tell little stories but it's all actually quite light but forces you to work together you can't run off by yourself you're just going to end up dying but the rules are quite streamlined and i did kickstart it i did get it just before essen but this is an official essen release i didn't play it in fact till uh, we were playing the general essen games i've played it a few times since then and i'm really enjoying it Sean, Space Cadets Away Missions, any comments? Yeah, I've got a couple of questions, but just before I ask the questions, 
I was actually just a few hours ago talking to one of our contributors, Steve, who also kickstarted it and has the game. And he was quite surprised, Ronan, that this was in your top three. And his main issue was he felt it was very fiddly. There were lots of little things to set up. He was struggling. The setup time was prohibitive. Sean, he has said that to me. And the only thing I can say is that I disagree a bit. You just lay down the tiles. There are two different tiles that go on each one of those larger room tiles, if you like. And you're away to go. Now, as you play through the scenario booklet, it builds rules upon rules. You start off with a sort of a tutorial, which gives you a very simple set of instructions. It gives you particular alien tiles, which must be in play, and particular discoveries, which must be in play. So kind of getting those out and saying, okay, we need those particular ones that can be a bit fiddly but it's just to start with it's because it doesn't want to overwhelm you too much it sets it up so that for example in the tutorial mission you get one sentinel is going to come out and the rest are just leaders and, and spacemen and you could ignore the bugs that are on the tiles and then and then as you go on then and you get to like the third mission is the first sort of big mission there are three tiles around the board which you have to get to in order to activate them and you're getting different types of like thralls coming in and what have you it builds up slowly. So I think some of the problem with that is that there's a little bit of fiddliness in sorting the components while it drip feeds you rules. But once you've played into the third and then the fourth scenario, all the rules start coming into play and then you're just using all the components. It gets a bit easier. It's a lot to do with how you've packaged the bits and bobs and whether you're ready to go. But that's what I'll say, Sean. I didn't find it that fiddly. I didn't certainly didn't find it fiddly to play. I didn't find the rules fiddly and that's more important to me. So it's very highly themed on the sci-fi of yesteryear, the danger of Will Robinson, and that kind of feel, Mars attack. Can you talk like that for the rest of the podcast? Yes, I can. Um, Eric. Hi. So, how well does it capture that? Did you feel like you were playing in a retro sci-fi B-movie, or does it not capture it? What I think it captures is that sense of fun. I don't think it takes itself too seriously. I think it always likes to throw up sort of different loops for you and throw in sort of different references. So, for example, one of the discovery tiles is basically a lightsaber. It's a proton blade, which does an amazing amount of damage, but has got limited charges, so it's not really overpowered. Or when you rescue a thrall, it can be like a nurse that will help you out or just different themed human beings. And that's what I really think they've done. With any co-op like this, it's going to turn into a puzzle, right? You're going to be looking at it and you're going to be going, okay, what's the optimum moves for us? What do we think is going to be best for us in this situation? And it's kind of hard to carry a theme very well through a cooperative game. What I think they've gone for is, while everything's thematic, the artwork's there, it's pushing that whole idea, all the stories and whatever you talk like that. They've gone for that fun almost but not quite because if you go for tongue-in-cheek it can get, get corny and cheesy right they haven't gone that far but they've definitely sort of gone let's just have fun with this and some of the tropes of that genre okay Ryan. so i really want to play this game it did when i first saw it look like it could be like a zombie side in space or is there more to it than that do you think i think actually that's probably the nearest comparison i think there is a bit more to it than zombie side there's more varied aliens there's more varied scenarios it's a bit more of a modular board now anyone listens to those i'm a big fan of zombie side because in these sorts of games i don't want the rules to get in the way 
I want to be able to look at the board, make an assessment, make a decision as a team and go with it and not be fiddling around with, oh, well, that's three inches away or that's two inches away, which is an extreme example or how to sort of eke out tiny advantages. It's make a decision, the decision being the key to it, not the rules or or rules mastering, if you like, min-maxing. This, I think, is a really good comparison, Sean, because I think it's the same thing with space cadets away missions. I don't find the rules get in the way. I can look at it and go, that's a Sentinel. It's a big old dark green model. Although we have started painting them with my kids, which is great. But that's a big old model. I know what that does. It's going to run at us and cause panic. So we need to spread out. Who's it going to attack? Who's got, okay, it's going to be you. You've got the highest order number. Right, great. Let's plan around that. It's not worrying too much about rule sets. Brilliant. I look forward to playing it in the very near future, Ronan. Yeah, it's basically that's away missions. I've said it all there. It's right in my wheelhouse. It's got that sense of fun. It's not kind of depressing like some of these sci-fi cops are where you're always getting worn down and oh, there's millions of aliens coming from everywhere. It's all like, oh, the Earth's going to die. It's it's fun. It's like, oh, we've gone out to the space station. Let's run around. Here's some bugs. Here's some worms. Hey, isn't this all cool? That's how I feel when I'm playing it. I really enjoy it. Space Gets Away missions. I really enjoy it. Number three for Essen 2015. Sean, what's your number three? Well, Ronan, I think... I'm safe to say that it would have been pretty close to your top three. This is Seventh Continent, currently being kickstarted by Sirius Pulp, designed by Ludovic Rodi and Bruno Sauter. They did Eight Masters Revenge and Steam Torpedo. There's one to four players, and here's the time frame. Five to a thousand minutes. There you go. This is a cooperative storytelling game where players must explore a modular landscape. They have to solve clues and find their way to the objectives. There's no player order in this game. Each player basically decides what they wish to do. And in a style very reminiscent of the old fighting fantasy books, which they've said they've modelled this on to some degree, the story will unfold depending on what the players choose. Very interesting game. Going to talk a bit more about the mechanisms as we discuss it, but Ronan, what was your first thoughts on Seventh Continent? So Seventh Continent didn't come out at Essen. It was there for their Kickstarter campaign. I know lots of people have complained about that, and you know I've kind of got two ways of thinking about it. But what happens is they've given us the first part of the game to sort of preview and chat about. Now that's cool. Lots of people offer us previews of games, and they give us a chance to talk about them. Often we'll say. Thanks a lot. You know, we'll let them know. Generally, we review full games. They did two things here, Sean, which I think were very clever. And the first thing to discuss is that the way they've presented the game, they've given us the whole first section, the whole introduction. So where you wake up, what you have to do, and that's going to set up the rest of your game. It generates where you arrive on an area and where you're going to move forward from there. And they've given us this whole sort of hour and a half, 90 minute setup of the game with everything you need to play it with up to three players. And it's such a clever idea by Sirius Pulp. And it looks lovely what they've given us. It really does. Even down to the tiles that you play on onto the table. They're quite small. But each one of them is minutely detailed. Down to there's a body on the rocks in one of them. And you can clearly see there's a little tiny body lying on the rocks by the sea. And every detail. I think there's another one where you have to choose whether to kill a seagull. And it says, if you choose one option, the seagull dies and falls on the rocks. And as you turn over the next card, there's a tiny little seagull dead on the rocks. The attention to detail 
is magnificent. Yeah, they've, they've built in visual clues into the game, which will give you an idea of when you're attempting to do something, what might be linked to it there. Yeah, there's a cave with an action on it, so you kind of go, well, I know I'm going to be looking in a cave, right? Or, as you said, or there's a stack, yeah, as in a cliff, a stack, and it says, well, clearly I'm going to be climbing up there if I go there. And it, only on small cards, but great. The other thing I was going to say with regards to the continent, though, and we don't usually talk about Kickstarter games and preview them, the fact is, they've given us a really great gaming experience, a full 90 minutes off game. Yeah, they have. It's completely encompassed. You've got your mission, you know what your mission is, you achieve it in various ways. There's multiple ways to achieve it and, and fail in it, so it's, it's all there. And one of the things that grabbed me, Ronan, is a lot of games talk about having this storytelling design. Now, we've recently played a game called Above and Below from one of my favourite designers, Ryan Lauka, and it's, it was all based around storytelling. And we'll, we'll probably talk about it in another episode in a bit more depth, but that didn't bring a tenth of what this game brings. You feel like you're on this island. You feel like you're working together. You feel like you're all having to face the same problems, but also you feel like you're individuals and able to make in individual choice it's very clever how they've done that yeah and something we talk about is are you discussing the in-game terms when you're making decisions and we literally have had people saying i'm not doing that investigation action because there is a body there and you feel like adventures you don't feel invulnerable in this game you're like i'm not i'm not doing that no way or oh yeah i think that's a good idea to that action because it looks like a tall cliff i just mentioned so we'll have a look around and see what's going on or, or, I don't know, like, shall we attempt to swim? It looks quite hard, and it says it's choppy water. This could be a waste of our time, but maybe we can do it. And you're talking about in-game terms, you know. Shall I use these twigs to make a fire? Yeah, we found crab meat. Shall we make that better for us? And the fact that it immerses you in the theme immediately, and all the cards read really well, which is fantastic, and and draw you in and gets you thinking, oh, yeah, I wonder about that, or should I do this, or should I do that? And actually, one of the things I'll have to say about this is that because they've given given us the beginning of the game, the mechanism as to how long you've got and whether you push your luck and how long you explore is the action deck, which when it runs out, you start getting trouble, you can start losing the game from there. So you're kind of rationing the amount of time you have because you're in a survival situation, which I think is very clever. But that's not something we could fully explore because the action deck is set up to give you a full game, and we've only played the start of it. So... It worked both ways. We could fully explore everything there was to do on this part of the game without the time pressure, but also because we didn't have the time pressure, maybe it took a little bit of sting out of those decisions because we knew we could kind of mosey around and do everything. Yeah, but it's going to be very difficult to experience that without having no game, as you quite correctly said. The one slide, it's not really a negative, it's just the only thing I could say that there wasn't 100% amazing for me was the star system and this is how you complete tasks you spend star points on them and when you're collecting your cards from this life deck you're looking to get a certain amount of stars to carry on the quest and I just didn't feel that that was completely thematic and I felt like I was looking for stars rather than ways to achieve the goal but the goal itself and the results of the goal and the fact that you did have to work as a group quite often to achieve it very all very thematic but just maybe that tiny little bit snapped me out of the game occasionally i think the stars themselves maybe but the push your luck worked we were saying oh whoa is it worth drawing four cards here 
So that it kind of the idea that this action is going to take a lot of effort from our shared deck. Is it worth it? So I think it worked on that level, even though it did feel slightly abstracted. But then, you know, does dice rolling feel any more thematic? Are there other things that feel any more thematic? I'm not sure that they do. Another thing I was going to mention, Sean, now, I played this game once by myself to start with. I've taught a few groups. The second time I went to teach this, I didn't even bring the rule book with me because every single rule made sense and it was intuitive. I thought about picking up the rule book and I went, do you know what, I don't actually need that. I know how to play this game completely. I can cover everything. That's amazing. Yeah, that is pretty good. And yeah, as soon as you taught me the game when when we first played it, then absolutely, it just felt like I knew what you were going to say next almost. I was almost butting in, which I know you absolutely love. It's an absolutely fantastic sign. And all in all, Ronan, just right up my street. As you like to say, this is definitely in my wheelhouse. It's the type of game I love. I loved fighting fantasy books when I was growing up. Still got a big collection I'm going to push on my son to try and get back into them again. And this is right in that area. Really good, really immersive, fantastic design, and a job very well done. I mean, if someone's going to say to me, we're going to include the start of a Kickstarter game in our top three for Essen, I'd be like, now come on, man. This is like, we're getting paid. Is there something dodgy going on here? This made. A fantastic impression on me, on Sean, on every single person we have played this with. I think we've generated, I don't know how many, I reckon there's probably at least a 50% backing rate on Kickstarter from the people we've played this game with. I have not had anyone not enjoy it. This deserves a place in the top three, genuinely. It was just brilliant. I'm so excited for the full game. I cannot wait till next year to get my hands on it. The Kickstarter for this is finished on the 27th of October. So you have to have listened to this within the first couple of days of it coming out. Seriously, people, go have a look. See if it interests you at all. I know it's not a cheap game, but it is a unique gaming experience that we have experienced so far. It all works. I know that this much of a game is easier to design than making it all work with everything they're going to include and the expansion and everything else is out there. But what they've done so far is so good. It's given me faith in it. So... Seventh Continent, fantastic. We we made an agreement not to include the same games in each other's top three because we're only doing a top three. If Sean hadn't written his first, this may have well been in my top three. Brilliant, that's Seventh Continent. Do you want to tell us your number two pick, Ronan? I don't, Sean. I want to pimp something out quick because I promised them I would. We're talking about this Kickstarter game. This is a quick mention for World's Fair 1893. Again, not a company we've got anything invested in, but they have been emailing us backwards and forwards. We've been chatting to them. I've kickstarted this game. It looks great. I love the theme. The World's Fair 1893 is a real interesting historical event. It's on Kickstarter the 28th of October. Just personal recommendation from me. Have a click on that Kickstarter. Have a quick look. I think there's an interesting game brewing there. Well, Shall I move on to number two now? You've gone Kickstarter crazy, Ronan. I have, and I'm not a Kickstarter man. What's you're going not, on? The world's turned upside down. <laughs> okay, let's go back to something much more mainstream. You're going to have heard loads about it. I'm sure there's lots of interest. Well, here's our opinion on it. It's Seven Wonders Jewel. That's my number two for Essen 2015. It's from Antoine Bowser and Bruno Cathala from Repos Games, a two-player game that takes about 30 minutes. I will go through it quickly just in case, but I'm sure you have heard about it. Card drafting game, which you're building up resources looking to build up your civilization. 
in the game, you're going to be drawing cards out of over three eras, a different setup of cards with some face up and some face down. You're going to look to win by taking military cards to attack the other player's capital on a push-me-pull-use track, which even if you don't get the capital, you're going to cost them money and you're going to be able to score points at the end of the game if you haven't defeated them. You're going to be looking to collect science cards, which you can get an instant win from, or they're going to give you bonus tokens, which will help you out during the game. You're going to be able to build blue buildings, as in the main seven wonders, which are going to score you points at the end of the game if it's not finished by military or science. There are yellow cards you can take, which are going to give you powers and points, and when you throw away a card you can't build for money, they're going to give you more money. There are various guilds you can build in the third age, different ones for each game, and they're going to give you victory points. That will sound familiar from Seven Wonders. There are also Wonders, 8 from 12, including each game. You can build a maximum of 7 between you. You get your own 4 to build from. Although you get a bonus if you bought it in Essen, you get the Essen Wonder, which is nice. It's all about taking these cards, being able to pay the cost either in money or by resource cards you've collected originally, or paying or certain buildings upgrade same as seven wonders but much clearer here using symbology which say if i've got a card with this symbol on that card has got that symbol on i can build it for free it works very similarly to seven wonders at the end of the three ages if no one's won with those instant wins you check for points and whoever's got the most points is the winner that's a lot of the similarities there with seven wonders sean but there are differences it is not just seven wonders shrunk down for two players do you want to throw any comments my way? Well, I'm going to start off with, it's not the game that I'm most disappointed that I didn't buy. It's the game I'm flabbergasted that I haven't bought. It was so definitely coming home with me, I think I got a bit blasé in the halls. And it was only when we were on our way home on the Friday, and I wasn't going back on the Saturday, that I said to Natalie, I said, we didn't buy Seven Wonders Jewel. She was like, surely we did. Nope, we didn't buy it. We'd both just got so blase about it, we forgot to buy it. It's going to get bought. Can you hear my shaking my head yes, over the internet? Yes, I can, yes. Just, just this, this is the sound of judgment, my friend, know, the sound of judgment. It will It will be coming my way. I've already scoped out a few prices. It's not very expensive. It's in the £20 range, so it'll be coming my way as soon as it's in the shops over here, which may even be now, so I might finish this podcast and buy it. So, Ronan, you have played it. I haven't. My fears when we talked about this before were that the insta-wins would not be hard enough to achieve. Is that the case, or have they made it hard enough so that you really have to work towards it? Like a lot of things in the game, there's a fine balance to it. And it can go in different ways. Now, it's when you start building towards the instant win. If I start taking military cards, it's how far you allow me to get. Because as I take them, I'm going to take money off you, for starters. So generally it's worth your while to defend yourself. But if you don't, I can then take more money from you. And if you don't, I then put myself in a position where even if I haven't won militarily, it's going to score me 10 points at the end of the game. If I am getting close, and there's lots of the game to go, and I'm only two or three swords away from defeating you, it becomes very difficult then for you, because of the spatial aspect of the drafting, because by choosing a card you open other cards up, to prevent me from getting any more swords. And then what it does is it makes that spatial aspect more important. It becomes cat and mouse in there. And it affects both our choices. Because we might be tempted to leave the red cards covered up. Which means we'll then draft sub-optimally to take other cards which are available which aren't covering red cards. Which may not suit exactly our strategy. And it's how far we push that. 
and eventually my good players you can manipulate so that you have to take a red card or maybe I've got a wonders that is going to give me a couple of swords and you're in big trouble and you're like wow I can only take reds now I'm in big trouble which then you're going to waste turns and open up other opportunities for me I might start sucking up those big blue point scoring cards and those guilds because I've got you under threat of the military so it's not a black and white situation it's not an all or nothing it's graduated it's good to get ahead of military and exactly the same thing works with the science it adds layers it affects the game in different ways depending upon how the game's gone and how defensive you've been early have you tried to negate science or military really it adds an interesting layer of decision sean i've said layer a million times there but it's true well done that's a lot of layers in that explanation like onions and or parfait <laughs> parfait Okay, so it's obviously a two-player version of its big brother, Seven Wonders. How well do you think that it captures Seven Wonders? And is there anything you would have changed about it? My biggest issue with it is that when I play it, it makes me want to play Seven Wonders. I think, wow, I wish I could... I'd love to yeah, eight of us here playing Team Seven Wonders or a game four of us. It would be lovely. I think it almost captures it too well, but it's not the same game. And, and that's the kind of the genius of it. It has the whole feel of it. It has the drafting. Things that I might miss, I think that you synergize less with your wonders. I'm not sure there's great patterns that come out very often because you draft your wonders in the beginning and it's quite hard to kind of get them all in a row because if I've got a wonder in the main game which gives me military, it pushes me in that direction. It gives me science symbols, pushing me in that direction, giving me lots of money, you kind of have an idea. In this one, because they all have varied powers, it's more difficult to base your strategy around what happens there. It's more the cards you take. The other thing in which it's different is that genuinely one poor choice can lose the game for you. There are certain key moments in which you have a choice and if you choose wrong, at the end of the game you can think back and go, do you know there? Do you know what happened? I should have taken that damn card. So, for example, when you take resources, you pay two gold per resource you don't have, plus one gold for every symbol of that resource your opponent has. So if my opponent has four stone symbols and I have none, every stone I need is going to cost me six gold, which is crippling. There's a yellow card, and there's one for each of the resources, which allows you to pay one gold for that resource, no matter how many you want. So if I want three stones, it's just going to cost me three gold, not 18 gold. If there's a point at which that's available... And there's another card available. And it coming back to science and military, maybe as a military, I have to take some in so much trouble. My opponent can come in and that card might be useless to them. And just turf it away and get a few gold and go, now you're screwed, son. Now you're never building anything with stone unless you get the synergies going. And you can look back at the end and go, I had to waste so much money or throw so many cards away or I couldn't build my ones because I didn't have access to stone. Ugh. And it can happen early on Back to what I was saying before. You've been put in a tight spot. I have to get that card. And that tightness, that doesn't come in normal Seven Wonders. It only comes in this version. Brilliant. While you were talking, I actually bought it. (laughs) (laughs) Are you saying, A, I was talking for too long, and B, you've got an addiction problem? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Talk. Hit me. Yeah, as I said, I just bought it. I can't believe I hadn't bought it before. Sounds amazing. Sounds right on my street. I love two-player games. I had to get rid of Seven Wonders because it just wasn't hitting the table because it wasn't a two-player game, so it was a no-brainer for me. It's coming to me now. It's great. It's just that it's stressful 
and I'm not very good at it. I keep losing. That's my main problem. But Seven Wonders Duel is better than it had any right to be. Fantastic game. Sean, your number two is going to be our first disagreement of this little section. Oh, there you go. Okay, so my number two is Champions of Midgard. It's from Grey Fox Games, designed by Ole Stainus. Ole did Police Precinct, another game we disagreed on, and Spurs, A Tale in the Old West. Two to four players, 60 to 90 minutes, although I think it's probably closer to the 60-minute mark once you know it. It is a Viking fantasy adventure worker placement game in the Lords of Waterdeep mold. Players are looking to win a glory in battle with various creatures and must first ensure that they have the resources and troops that are represented by dice to do what they need to do. In the game, there's various locations that you can go and place your workers to gather resources gather coins and there's also areas where you can go and battle there's trolls there's the undead faction and there's also monsters that are across the sea to get to the monsters across the sea you have to either hire or purchase a boat and as I said, your warriors that you send to do battle are all represented by dice. And you're going to roll the dice. If you get enough sword results, then you defeat the monster and then you take the monster into your hand. The set collection aspect, the monsters are different colours. And there's not much more to it than that, Roland. Very similar to Lords of Waterdeep with a little bit of combat thrown in. I enjoy playing it, Sean. Yes. It's, it's, kind of, it's a good game. You know, but is there anything new in it? It's a standard place your worker, collect some resources, convert those resources into something else, cards or dice, whatever you, and score some points. No, there's there's nothing particularly new or innovative. It's all things that I enjoy. Lords of Waterdeep hasn't hit the table for me for a little while because of one thing. I was kind of bored with the missions. You go and collect your mission, you save up enough resources, and you just cash them in. This just brings a tiny bit. I'm not saying it's the brilliantly executed or that there is much chance of you failing usually, but there's a tiny little chance that you're going to fail with those dice rolls because if you roll badly or terribly in a dice roll, you might fail and you might not kill the monster. So there's that tiny bit of excitement added to it. I'm going to take you to task on two issues there. Firstly... You're wrong about Lords of Waterdeep. And the missions are way, way more varied than they are in this game. The second thing is, the combat is boring. Because generally the monster has one or two hits. The only thing you're doing is you're risking how many of your own dice you're going to lose. Because you're probably, in fact, you are going to get the one hit it needs to kill it. So you're definitely going to kill it. How many of yours are you going to kill? Basically, how many resources are you going to spend? And how many warriors are you going to have left to go again the next turn? That's not an interesting decision, mate. It's a little bit of risk mitigation. I disagree. I disagree. I I, was, I had high hopes for that combat. That's why I was thinking this is going to be the interesting part. And I just didn't find it interesting at all. I liked it. I just thought it finds that biting point between the random and the tactics just nicely. 
yeah, you're going to probably win, especially if you send enough warriors to go and do battle. But how many are you going to lose? And it's just that little bit of excitement, a little bit of you're not quite sure if you're going to come back with the victory. Whereas with Waterdeep, yeah, the quests are more varied. I agree, because you've only got maybe in total seven or eight different monsters in the whole game of this. But, but even then, all monsters are almost the same. Yeah. You're sending warriors against them yeah. all. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. But I just feel like in, in Waterdeep, you know it 100%. You've got the resources. You're committing your... And I'm not going to say cubes, because we don't say cubes. You're, gotcha. <laughs> your, your wizards, clerics, warriors, and rogues. Thank <laughs> and you. And priests. To do your mission. Clerics and priests. You should throw Did an I say clerics and priests? Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> the white ones. Oh, ah! oh, and yeah, you're definitely going to achieve that. Listen, it, Waterdeep is still a better game, but I just, yes. I just genuinely enjoyed just having that little bit of difference. I like the set collection aspect of it. Just a thoroughly enjoyable game. I, I didn't have to put on my thinking cap too much, but Ronan, there is a negative and it's quite a big one. So it's, it's quite surprising. It's my number two choice. You know, I love me a component. The components in this game, dice aside, the cards I'm mainly thinking about are terrible. The quality. Components. Completely needs to be discussed. The artwork is good. It is. It's lovely. It looks from a distance. It looks very, very pretty. The card components are poor. They are low standard. They're flimsy. They're not great. The wooden components are worse. They've got missing arms. They've got big cuts halfway through them. Some of them are misshapen. There is zero quality control on the wooden components of this game. <laughs> there is, but I think you've got most of the bad ones. It seems that these might have been an afterthought because we were given this bag of wooden counters or tokens to replace the little cubes that come in the game. But mine were absolutely perfect, Ronan. So, and I did see yours. <laughs> I was dreading looking did at I, mine. I got the offcuts. Off, <laughs> yeah. I got the offcuts, did you I? You got the offal. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. So are these bits, they're all right. I'll chuck them in one bag and we'll fire yeah. them at him. Give them, them to him. But not good, though. The quality no, is not good. No. And the cards, after one, not even after one play, after one shuffle, we shuffle, took them out of their wrapper and we shuffled them at your house when we were having our big and gaming day when we came back. And just putting them in that pile they were bent after one shuffle they were all bending upwards that's terrible quality i don't know where you go to get a card that bad do you know that factory at the end of the road that says poor cards uh, these aren't poor cards these are terrible cards the worse yeah they're they in the next town along pass muster for that place <laughs> i tell you what it's a, it's a solid game i'll happily play it again i don't want to give it too much of a kick in i think the biggest issue for me is that it's come out of what amounts as the publishing arm of Cool Stuff Inc. And it had a big push behind it. And it was sold as something different to Lords of War Thief and innovative. And the combat was this great thing. And you know what? I don't think that push did it any favour. It raised expectations. And it didn't hit those expectations for me. I found it to be a disappointment. Which is why I'm probably a bit grumpier than it than I would be otherwise. If it come out of the blue, I might have been like, Oh yeah, cool, you know, good try, good effort. It's not new, it's not innovative, it's an okay, good URE resource collection game. Obviously, I think of it a lot higher than that, it's my number two choice. And 
I mean, it just does everything right. As I said, it finds that balance between the random and the tactics. It looks very pretty. Yeah, the car quality isn't great. I love a dice rolling in anything. And just having that slight chance that things aren't going to work, that's enough for me. It's not going to replace Lords of Waterdeep, but for now, it's something that's just given me a tiny little bit different of a great game. So that was my number two choice as Champions of Midgard. Ronan, on to the big one. And this really is the big one, Sean. I am the nod about including this game because it's Pandemic Legacy. And at this point, I only have two plays of it in. And I really thought, can I include it? You know, I just haven't experienced enough to give it a proper review. But then I can't give it a proper review anyway, because I'd only spoil things. So this is going to be as spoiler-free as possible. I'm going to talk in general terms only. But having thought about the games I've played so far, this is the one that's got me most excited. This is the one I've talked about the most. This is the one that's been the most fun. So it's in here. It's from Matt Leacock and Rob Davio. It's from Z-Man Games. Two to four players, 60 minutes, over 12 to 24 games of it. And then you're done with that particular set. It's the same as Pandemic. Starts off with you are one of a variety of roles. And between your team, you're going to attempt to save the world from a pandemic outbreaks of four different diseases which occur in different areas of the globe. And it starts exactly like a pandemic game starts. You choose your roles. In this case, you actually name them. So that's cool. And then you head out to save the world. In the first game, the rules start to change. And that's as far as I'll go there. But you will be sticking stickers onto the board. You will be getting out new components. There are spaces in the rule book for the stickers which will be unveiled throughout the whole course of this year of games, these 12 to 24 games, and you will actually stick new rules into the rulebook. The cities on the board will develop. They will start to panic and fall into disrepair, and you won't be able to build research stations in them, and different things will happen to them. Already, I can tell you, we have certain cities which are hotspots for us. To my eternal shame, London is the most panicked city so far in the game, and I'm not happy about that at all. But thankfully, I've kept Essen clear. And I am quite panicky about that. Your characters will change as things occur to them within the game. The diseases themselves will change, and how you have to deal with them or how they react will be different as the game goes through. All these things have happened already, and I've only played two plays of it so far. In that first game, it changed... And we had to change the way we were thinking about the game. We are straightway, this is no longer a normal game of pandemic. We need to stop. We need to think about the impact of these rule changes. How are we going to go from here? We've got to rip up a card already. People were cheering. I know there's some excitement about it with regards to well, yeah, what's going to happen in Pandemic Legacy, but that thing of, yeah, we get to rip our first card. Cool. It creates that excitement. It creates the mystery. You have these big files that say top secret, and you don't open the windows. It tells you open the windows. You've got eight compartments for components, bigger compartments in the box. You don't open them until you're told to open them, and we have got to open one already, and we have got new components, and that's as far as I'll tell you, but it is exciting. It creates an ongoing narrative, and that is drawing us back. We are all enthralled. Each game, as well as giving you bad things to deal with and making the situation worse, also gives you good things and, and makes you more powerful and, and gives you choices on what good things you want so that you feel you're shaping your own destiny. And again, that is how to get engagement. 
Sean, I know it's difficult to talk about Pandemic Legacy without spoiling it, but I had to include it as my number one. It's been only two games, say it again, but fantastic so far. Alrighty, so yeah, staying in general, I, I own the game and I'm biding my time running because having seen you and having seen the pain in your face when you can't play it for a few days after those first couple of games, I want to give myself a proper run at this. I want like five days straight that I can just play this, play it again, play it again, because if it does kick off like it has with your gaming group, that I, I want to be playing this more than once or twice. But I am somebody who does not particularly like Pandemic. Is there enough in this game for me to enjoy? Is there more to it? Is there things that I am going to enjoy in this game? There is more to it. It is more dynamic. There are changing situations and puzzles to it. At the end of the day, Pandemic is what it's based on. It's a difficult question for me to answer. It's based on Pandemic, but it evolves from there. And it becomes, well, so far, a different game, but a variant of Pandemic for us so far. So it's not massive changes yet. What it becomes in the end, I can't tell you, mate. I don't know. I will never understand why you don't like Pandemic. I just don't understand at all. But if you don't like Pandemic, is there enough there? And how excited are you about the idea of a constantly changing game? I think that's the only other appeal to it. Very. <laughs> Very. That's, that's why I bought it here. But and I'm going to revert to a four-year-old here. Ronan, how exciting is it when you open up one of those sealed containers? Proper exciting. <laughs> Do you know what? I think this is the biggest barrier to me to know whether this is a good game or not. Because I am so caught up in this what next element. I'm so excited. The need to explore this game is overwhelming. And right now, I, it's almost a shame. I feel like I'm almost rushing the games in order to get to the next thing. You know? And I'm almost playing. Like, yeah, take a turn, take a turn. This is cool, this is cool. We're, we're playing Pandemic, we're trying to fight the system. But really what we're waiting for is, okay, what happens next, what happens next, what happens next? It, it's, it's kind of a funny play on, I'm enjoying this game. I want it to be over so I can get through this stack of cards and see what's next and follow the instructions and you know it is a funny gaming experience but it's a very exciting gaming experience Sean I cannot wait um, but it's like Christmas I can't get too excited about it otherwise I'll just get myself in the right old state so <laughs> I'm taking a step it back it genuinely is like Christmas in fact one of my girls because I'm playing it with my daughters and my partner and one of my girls said it is his like game of Christmas dad every time we play it. We get to open these windows like an advent calendar and sometimes we get to open the presents which are the eight things in the box, the eight different areas for components and that that's what she compared it to. And it, it generates that excitement, it genuinely does. I think that after we've both finished the whole campaign, now that's going to be a way down the line because I'm not going to get this played. We're not going to sit down and play again and again and again like some people are able to do. It's part of, sort of family time and there has to be some balance there. We have to do some things other than gaming. But I think if both what? of us get through the whole campaign, I know. I know. And I'm sorry. I don't know what you just said there. You, you went... There has to be some other things other than gaming. <laughs> you, you went into went into Esperanto there. So... I've, booked my new, I've booked my Star Wars tickets, for example. Ooh. Or got them booked for me, actually. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. Um, you know, so it's going to be a while. But I think that if this continues to hold this level of excitement, it continues to develop the story, I think it's going to be worth us time, the two of us sitting down and having a chat 
about how our games of Pandemic Legacy have gone and how they developed and how we sort of enjoyed them. I think there could be some interest in that. And that's when you can really sit down and evaluate it as a total campaign because that's when it's going to be judged. Brilliant. Okay, so Pandemic Legacy, certainly a hit in Ronan's household. Big, big, big ongoing hit. hit. And given I haven't played that yet, my biggest hit of the Essen Fair is a game that we actually played just before Essen. Uh, it came out in the UK just a couple of weeks before Essen. and managed to play a game but loved it so much that picked it up at Essen and it was everywhere. It is Shakespeare from Istari Games, designed by Hervé Arigal. It plays one to four players in a time frame of 20 to 90 minutes, depending on the player count. This is a game of multi-mechanisms. You've got bidding, card drafting, worker placement, tile placement, all in there. It's set during the English Renaissance, with players representing theatre managers trying to impress Queen Elizabeth I. So in the game, you're basically trying to set up a play. So you are designing the set, you are costuming your actors, you are working through the acts of the play and rehearsing the acts of the play and each round you're going to have your own tableau in front of you and your own workers and in each round you're going to bring one more worker into into the tableau and you're going to use your workers to do various things either increase in one of the three acts improve your set or give your actors better costumes we did talk about this before Essen it was in one of our Essen preview shows so I won't go on too much more Ronan Shakespeare great choice Sean tight game thematic game surprisingly interactive game you live and die on your own choices and your own gambles whether you choose to grab that set now or you grab something else or whether you choose to rest your jeweler and give someone else that opportunity to grab the gold bits how you choose to prioritize what you're doing how many actions you choose to do what's great about it is that it's not overwhelming with the rules you can clearly see what your options are and then it's down to you to prioritize and you feel in charge of your own destiny during the game yeah, right, and this, this game has, it's another one with layers, it's another onion and parfait job. There's lots to think about individually in each player turn, but then your decisions that you make have ripple effects in the future and past, because your workers get tired. Where do you go up on in the acts? It, it all builds up and you find yourself with a very limited amount of choice at the beginning because, as I said, you're bringing workers in each turn. But by the end, you're really thinking, what worker is going to give me the best chance of winning this game? Really clever how it builds up into a crescendo. The prioritisation of those actions is tough. It really is. And it's almost like a fight to get the right set pieces, you know, the ones that improve your ambience, because you can see someone's got a hamlet and they're going to ma- hit you, or if you don't grab those purple pieces, then someone else is going to, Or but then money's always going to be tight, so do I need to grab those pink ones first? And even those decisions, every time I take one, it means you're not going to get it. So if I think you've got loads of like five-cost actors and you're struggling for money, 
Oh, well, I don't actually need money, but I'm going to grab those pinks anyway just to screw you over. And they're still going to do me good. They're still going to add to my set and build up. And so it's almost a win-win. It's great. Or the other thing is great planning that you're comboing your dress rehearsal powers and making a plan out of them and going, okay, cool, right. So I've got three red dress rehearsal powers. If I get them costumed up, I don't need to take that actor with a red feather because I won't need them anymore, which gives me freedom to draft someone else in. And making your plan along those lines I find very interesting. There's just so much to like in this one, Rona. It was said to me recently by Natalie... She said she didn't actually feel that the theme was very good in the game. It didn't hold up. She felt it was quite abstract. And I kind of took umbrage because I think the theme makes this work. I think you're costuming your actors. You're designing your set. And you're trying to get symmetry in your set design. And you're bringing these workers in. And they're all famous Shakespearean characters. As you said, like Hamlet and Macbeth and Othello are all coming. I thought it was very thematic. And... It, that was an aid in, in when you're teaching the game, Ronan. I think it's a very Euro use of theme. Mechanically, it's not thematic. Okay, you are just collecting little bits of tokens with numbers on, and you are just collecting cards with two powers. I mean, like writing the different acts for the play, you're just moving up a track. You're not doing anything that's writing. Where I think it really works is A, the presentation, which is fantastic, as you've mentioned, and it all feels like what it's supposed to feel like it's all great art it feels like that sort of theater like when we go and visit the globe and you know you go for the presentation there and stuff it kind of gives you that feeling the second thing what it does exactly what you just said it ties the rules together it makes the rules make sense and you can explain pretty much everything thematically kind of but pretty much and that's exactly what a theme should do for a euro so if it looks pretty and it helps explain the rules that's Euro theme done. It's not the storytelling. It's not Seventh Continent. It's not Pandemic Legacy. It's not kind of that level of storytelling aspect to it. It's just a solid Euro use of theme, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. And one last thing I want to mention that I really like about it is this, the variety. So you've got the deck of cards where you're drafting your actors and your tradesmen. And the way these come out is completely random. And obviously other players may step in and take the things that you want. So maybe you have to rethink and go a different way. The random draws for the costume and set tokens. You don't know what colours are going to come out. So do you plan for pink knowing that there's only two left in the bag and just that adds to the variety of the game and that keeps it fresh for me as well i've played two or three times now and each game is is slightly different because i can go down different paths and those paths alter as i'm playing yeah and what's great is that you can't get a set strategy you can't say i think this is best to do i'm always gonna build my set first the path which is optimal is always going to change from game to game and sometimes even from turn to turn and where you are in turn order is going to affect that so if lots of costume makers come out early you're going to get a real fight for the costume pieces obviously it's a puzzle which changes with every game and with every turn and it's massively affected by what the other players are doing and you know if i've gone for a heavy waged troop then I'm going to have to start sacrificing the opportunity for queen points just to get the money that I desperately need. Uh, And you're right, Sean, it is very varied, uh, but you kind of have to be into the game to see the variety. I think we're kind of struggling to push it over, but every game plays out differently. 
it's one of my favourite games of 2015 so far. When we do our top five or whatever we do at the end of the year with regards to it, I imagine it's coming up there. And there's a place some amazing games between now and at the end of the year. And I think this is a really great choice for, for number one of us in 2015. Yeah, for my choice, obviously, I absolutely adore it. Even the small decisions for me end up being huge. Just quickly to run through, you do a little bid at the beginning of the game to see how many workers you're going to use this turn at the beginning i just thought of my first game it doesn't really matter i'll just use four because then i'll have one to play with and it won't take up too many of my workers by the end of the game turn order becomes important and then you're thinking but if i go for turn order if i go first i'm campering myself with fewer workers ah even that just becomes almost a game in itself trying to get yourself exactly where you want to be with that bid brilliant absolutely adore this game looks amazing i love it the theming of it and it plays fantastically what more could you want and that's my number one choice shakespeare Well, there we have it. We've talked about the ones we loved. We've talked about the ones we haven't loved so much. Essen 2015 is at a close, finally. Gone, but not forgotten, Sean. I'm sure that a couple of these titles, plus some others from the fair, will come up when we do our end of 2015 review. They always do. And already we're looking forward to Essen 2016 with the likes of Seventh Continent, Steamship Company, which I had the chance to playtest with Matt Gertz himself. That was fun. And it's just onwards and upwards for us and gaming and the game pit I'm in such a good mood yeah we've also Ronan got a chance to play even more of these Essen games when we go down to London on board on sea down at Eastbourne in a couple of weeks yeah LobsterCon 10 coming up at the end of November as with previous LobsterCons we'll do a roundup of all the games we played there it's always great fun it's always tiring it's usually a bit closer to Essen so we talk about more Essen releases this time it's a few weeks away possibly there'll be a balance there's talk of a Codenames competition which is a great game lots of different things once we come back from there we'll update you guys with all the games we've played all weekend yeah I'm looking forward to that and as always We are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for the very best in gaming podcasts. We're also very proud members of 2d6.org. Please visit 2d6.org for the best in written, audio, and visual gaming content. You can see us on Facebook. We have a Twitter account. We're at GamePit Podcast. We have a Board Game Geek Guild, and we absolutely love hearing from people on there. Lots of cool conversations going on, and we're always happy to chime in with our thoughts. You can email us if you have any questions or just want to tell us about something at the game pit podcast at gmail.com you can download our episodes on stitcher and of course on itunes thank you for listening music by e. aaron <laughs> <laughs>